you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, in chapter 18, Acts 18. And we're continuing in our series in the book of Acts, and give me just one moment here. Acts 18, and uh, if you'll look at verse 22 through uh, 23, and if you would stand for the reading of the Word of God, Acts 18, verse 22, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've been looking at some very uh, hopeful and yet heavy things this morning. God, and we've cast our hope upon you, and Lord, our uh, prayers for our brothers and sisters in difficult places is that their hope resting in Christ, their hearts would be lifted, encouraged. God, I pray that you would remind us this morning of how important fellowship in the body is and how as we go through these heavy and hard times, Lord, you help those around us speak truth and encouragement into our hearts, and you show the love of Christ through people, and we can be the heart and hands of Jesus for those around us. We pray that you'd help us to understand better in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A guy by the name of Scott McKnight was commenting on how there's three ways to eat a salad. There's the American way, the weird way, and the right way. The American way of eating a salad is to fill your bowl with some iceberg lettuce or some spinach leaves, some tomato slices and olives, maybe some carrots, and then smother it with salad dressing, you know, like ranch or Thousand Island or Italian, or for, you know, special occasions, maybe Caesar. But the weird way is to separate each item in your salad around on your plate and then to eat them as separate items. People who do this don't even use dressing sometimes. And he says, that's just weird. Okay, that's just weird. Now, there's a right way to eat it, he says. And that's uh, to gather all your ingredients, some spinach, kale, chard, arugula, iceberg lettuce, if you must. Then chop it into smaller bits, then cut up some tomatoes, carrots, onions, red pepper, and purple cabbage, add some nuts and dried berries, sprinkle some Pecorino Romano cheese, and finally drizzle over the salad some good olive oil. And this somehow brings out the taste of each item to its fullest. And then he says this, surely this is what God intended when he created the mixed salad called the church. And that's what we are, we're just a mixed salad. A whole lot of different people all gathered together for one big purpose. But when you put us together and you add the Holy Spirit and the power of Christ, something beautiful comes out of it. Something that I think to the world has a unique flavor. Something very different. Well, I'm so thankful for the local church God has assembled here. I'm thankful that we're the kind of church that tears begin to fall when we read about brothers and sisters in the Ukraine 
I'm thankful for that. It means our hearts are working well. Our spiritual hearts are definitely working well. But as we kind of zero in even from the global church into the local church, let's continue finding some ways that we can enjoy biblical fellowship and why it's so important. It was very important to Paul. Uh, as you know, uh, we've taken this passage and you say, Pastor, I think you've expanded this well beyond its, its borders and trying to understand. But I, I think there's so much that we see here and so much we, we can gain from the actions that Paul took. When Paul, not only after his first missionary journey, but again after a second missionary journey, went back to the Jerusalem church and to the Antioch church, a journey of some 1,500 miles in two verses. Something was happening, I think, that gives us instruction for the church today, for us, and why it's so important. Um, and so our theme has been along the way, this is going to take me just a moment, I apologize, I thought I had turned it on. Um, and in the large sense, we've been talking about how Paul took time to reflect, renew, and refresh, and this will this led to greater, fr greater fruitfulness or effectiveness and joy in ministry and, and how we need these same things. Uh, then we kind of zeroed in on the idea of refreshing and spiritual rest, and that's what Paul was doing. He was taking some time for rest and refreshment because he knew this was key to having a more joyful and effective ministry. Now, up until this point, I've kind of used the word fruitful, and the reason why is because the Bible actually uses the word fruitful a lot. It was a pretty common thing in their day to see gardens and crops growing. And so when the Bible talks about fruitfulness, we understand he's not talking about human success. And when we say the word effective, sometimes we think, oh, you mean he had human success. No, I'm going to use this word effective and joyful. But when I say effective, I use it in the sense of fruitfulness. In other words, God works through his people by his power. I'm using it sort of in the 1 Corinthians chapter 3 idea, uh, where he says, some plant, some water, but who gives the increase? God gives the increase, of course. So when I use the word effective, I want you to think of that word fruitfulness. And so we began to learn that with this, ne this, this needed thing of rest and refreshment spiritually and physically, that ministry is more effective and joyful with periods of rest. And so we're zeroing in on that idea of biblical fellowship. It leads to greater effectiveness and joy in ministry. So ministry then is more effective and joyful with periods of rest. And ministry is more effective and joyful with biblical fellowship. We're looking at this now and we'll catch this third theme kind of interwoven in. Ministry is more effective with encouragement and accountability. And all these things happen when Paul goes back to Jerusalem and Antioch, okay? Remember Jerusalem, mother church, Antioch was the first, uh, the key church plant in reaching the Gentile world. So as he goes back there, these are more mature believers in Jerusalem. There would be the apostles. So he's going back there not only reporting, but he's getting lots of fellowship, lots of encouragement, and it, that helps keep him accountable. And we all need that. Let me tell you, if Paul needs accountability, I'm pretty sure you need it too, okay? So then we begin to flesh out this idea of what is actual biblical fellowship. Because sometimes we start thinking about, yeah, that's what we're going to do next week when we have the dinner. You know, for Baptists, if you don't have food, you don't have fellowship. Well, you know you could, 
and you concede, okay, maybe just coffee, but at least coffee. Uh, fellowship is so much more than that. Um, and there's five things that we saw are part of this idea of biblical fellowship. Unity, community, harmony, ministry, and maturity. Um, biblical fellowship has to have these elements. If not, it's just a casual friendship. And here's the problem is we kind of like casual friendships more than we like biblical fellowship because they really require, require very little effort and they're easily replaced. It's kind of no must, no fuss. I can walk away, brush my hands, and it's okay. But if it starts getting messy or costly or awkward or tense, you know, we just kind of walk away. We say, see you later, or better yet, I hope not to see you later and just have a good life. So we kind of prefer these casual friendships versus real biblical fellowship because it takes a lot out of us. But that's exactly why we need it. Because not only does it take much out of us, it also helps us to pour much into other people. And in the process, we get a whole lot too. And in the process, God does His greatest work. We've already looked at these first two ideas, unity and community. Unity is the spiritual reality that we're one with Christ, and so we are one in Christ. God intentionally connected you to other people. And let me say this, get used to it. It's going to be that way for all eternity. If you think, oh, heaven for me is going to be me sitting by some heavenly pond fishing for some heavenly bass of at least five pounds or larger, and it's going to be me and Jesus, my fishing buddy, you're sadly mistaken. We're going to be surrounded by a whole host, a whole company of people. And you know what? That's how God wants it. And He wants it here, surrounding us with people who are investing in us and we're investing in them because God is, if nothing else, relational. That's really what we see first and foremost about God. Even the Godhead exists in Father, Son, and Spirit. There's this group dynamic, so to speak. And then he invites us into that group dynamic. And then he takes all of us and puts us into Jesus Christ as believers and expands that group dynamic. It's so important. And we talked about community. We talked about how community is how the church lives out this idea of unity because God doesn't like theories. He likes real, practical love. And this by its very nature, involves both our worship and our walk. Our worship means that we pray together, we praise together. We've been doing that. We've even cried together this morning and blubbered a little bit. Don't, don't ever feel bad about blubbering. I do it all the time. But not only praise and prayer, but progress. We grow together. And then it involves certainly our walk. People who stick with us on our best days and our worst days a family who shares all of our triumphs, our tragedies, and a team who's going to be with us day in and day out because they care how we're doing spiritually. That's all part of it. But let's look at those last three things, okay? Starting with the idea of harmony. Now, what is harmony? What do we mean when we say that biblical fellowship involves harmony? Harmony is working together in God's mission. Now, I want you to turn to another passage with me. I think that really helps us understand this a little more deeply. And that's the book of Philippians in chapter 2. 
Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 1. And I don't have time to really wring all the blessed truth out of these passages. If so, it would be like another six-week message. You know, we can't do that. But I would like us to kind of hit the high spots and see how it is that we achieve harmony or unity in the local church. How do we all kind of get on the same page, all get pointed in the same direction so we can get God's work done? You realize the purpose of of unity isn't to get the church work done or to get my work done or even your work done. It's to get God's work done. And that's why unity is so important because we don't get together because we all agree on everything. If so, every church would have one member. And even then, we're not sure about him. But we're so much more than that. We gather for a greater purpose, and that purpose is Jesus Christ and His redemptive mission. This is how God's people get God's work done. And what we see is all throughout Paul's life, he worked with a host of other people. I mean, he was going back to Antioch because there was people he loved there, people that he needed, people in Jerusalem that he loved, people he needed. Now, even as we get into chapter 2, we have to look at Philippians 1.27. He says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I can hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. I love this. He says, in order to walk worthy of the gospel. Here's the thing is, the gospel is so big and so important, how we live it out every day really matters. And the And the picture we give of the gospel to the world really matters. And so we should walk in a way that's worthy of God's rescuing mission to us. And it should give the right opinion to the world about what he's really doing. We cannot represent Christ and his rescuing work without unity. And disunity in the church hurts our gospel witness. He says, I want you to strive together, labor together, work together. Why? For the faith, or for what? For the faith of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is worthy of that kind of walk, a walk of unity. We also see he mentions unity later on in Philippians 4.2. We talked about Euodia and Syntyche. Remember, we call them odious and so touchy. (laughs) And he reminds them, hey, I've been talking a lot about unity, and That unity should be seen in our personal relationships, in the church. So what we see here is the reality of their union in Christ, their responsibility, how to live that out in a worthy way, and then there's some things we also must refuse because of it. So let's first of all look at the reality. What is the fuel for unity in our lives? Well, he tells us in verses 1 through 4, therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, and I think we could say any comfort from his love, any fellowship, partnership in the spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. He starts with helping us understand the reality of our union with Christ. And that then becomes the fuel for our unity with each other. And let me just say it this way. The more you experience 
union, the full, I'll say the fullness of your union with Christ or experience a close relationship with Jesus Christ, the more you will be drawn to your brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church. And I've already kind of said that. You draw close to Christ, you're going to go close to the church, close to the people. Why? Because our hearts being tied together with Jesus and so that our hearts become more like Jesus, we're going to love what he loves. So we see, first of all, the encouragement of Christ. Here's the idea of someone who comes alongside to help us, to counsel us, to encourage us. It says consolation uh, is a similar word to the word that's used for the Holy Spirit. And here we see Christ is coming close as a friend putting his arm around us and speaking truth and encouragement and love and comfort into our hearts. And then he continues, continues this as comfort from his love. Now, this is a little bit more even close personal type of word. It has the picture of leaning in even closer and whispering into our ear how much he loves us. And as we experience that relationship with Jesus Christ where he is counseling and encouraging us and speaking tender words of love and compassion into our hearts, that then becomes the fuel for us to reach out with love and tenderness to those around us. He then says fellowship with the Spirit. That's the Spirit tying our hearts together through Jesus Christ. He says affection and mercy. We experience compassion and care. Let me say it again. The closer you get to Jesus and experience his love, the more that love flows through you into everyone around you. And you realize that Christ wasn't content to talk about love. He comes close and demonstrates his love. We also then begin to say, I'm not content to sit by and talk the talk of love. I need to show love in practical ways. And that always is the outflow of our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's our communion with Christ that fuels our community with each other. The closer you get to Christ, the more you love his people. Sometimes we think we find unity when people agree with this, but this isn't true. We find unity when we find people that agree with Christ on the big stuff and we choose to give grace for all the other stuff. We're not looking for people who share all the same opinions. We're looking for people who share life in Christ. And that's what it's really about. And that's why you can take very different ingredients to this chopped salad and make something really beautiful and flavorful. But you know, as we experience then this community with Christ, how does it then flow out in our relationships with each other? Well, notice what it says. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, having one accord, having one mind. Being like-minded, this is choosing unity out of love for Christ in the church, intentionally going the same direction. See, that's the problem is, in our selfishness, so oftentimes we're trying to pull our direction. No, I think we should do this. What happens if you get a rope and everyone's pulling in opposite directions? Well, nothing gets accomplished. But as we all say, hey, listen, this thing that we're part of, the church is so big and so important, it's worth all of us pulling in the same direction for God's glory. 
And this, he says, is what you need to choose to intentionally do. He says, love equally. This is loving and caring for every member of the church. He goes on and talks about unifying in the spirit and purpose. He uses the word one accord, which literally means being one-souled. That means our spirit and our attitude is, to, is such that we try to find ways to work together for the common good. And one mind means to go the same way on purpose. That means when we walk into the local church, we're not asking the question, what are you going to do for me? It's saying, what can we do together for Christ? And then intentionally putting your hands on the work and helping pull. Think of it maybe as a tug of war, that rope and people pulling in different directions. We all get on one side and we're pulling for Christ to get His work accomplished. He goes on to say then, with this unifying attitude and with this equal love for each person and with this choosing to pull the same direction, it says that we should then, verse 4, consider others' interest and not our own interest. And then in chat, uh, verse 5 through 11, he goes on and talks about what humility looks like by giving the example of Christ, who is willing to take on human flesh and condescend, become human for the work of the cross and for the resurrection. So, that's our responsibility. First of all, the reality is our union with Christ and Him speaking tender words of unity with us, drawing us close, having a close relationship. This, res this results in us being like-minded, filled with love, and having intentional unity. But it's not just enough to all say we're going to pull in the same direction. There's some things that we're going to have to refuse if we're going to maintain that unity. Look at, listen to what he says in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. He said there's some things that we're going to have to refuse. And let me tell you something. Because we live in fall, a fallen flesh, we are going to battle with having selfish ambition, I want my way, and conceit. I want my way because I'm smarter than everybody else in the room. We may not say that, but when we pull for our own way, when, the, when people are all pulling one direction, we're saying, no, I'm pulling a different way. What are we saying? I know better than everybody else, so I'm going to pull for what I want. The Bible says that that's the kind of attitude that we must intentionally refuse to fill our hearts because they, it will get in there quickly. Selfish ambition is just insisting on your own way. Conceit, this is the reason for the selfish ambition. It's my inflated ego causing me to push for my own way because I just think it's better. And here's the thing is, biblical fellowship combats our self-interested isolation. Because we tend to think, whether we say it or not, our way is better if people don't agree with us, we kind of isolate ourselves and say, well, I know I'm right. And we, we have this self-interested isolation where we start saying, you know what, what's really important is my life, my to-do list, what's going on with me. And then we begin to isolate ourselves from the body because we're so focused on what's really important to me. That's why fellowship is so important because it breaks us out of that and causes us to think about others. 
But not only that, fellowship helps reveal our self-deception. Because here's the truth is, a lot of times we think we're right and we're dead wrong. And here's the problem is, is our hearts will keep on telling us we're right. It'll be deceived. But here's the beauty. When we get around God's people, they begin to speak truth into our life and it breaks through that self-deception and allows us to see the truth and it helps us to get free of that self-deception and that isolation. But then he continues to turn over to verse 14, and we're not going to have to be able to hit all every verse in here. Uh, certainly, looking at verses 5 through 11 as Christ, the example of humility, is amazing. And then verse 12, it says, My beloved brethren, as you have, uh, have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with faith in all. Let your your relationship with Christ bubble to the surface. Let Christ shine through, so to speak. And we do that by having all of God in faith. And then he says this, because it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. That's the thing that gives us hope. When uh, we're like, Lord, I, I seem to be messing up more than I seem to be doing, the, doing what's right. We fall back on this truth that it's God working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we can have hope. God's working in me. God's going to help bring Christ out in my life. He's going to help me grow in Him. And so, we then reach verse 14, and he tells us another thing we have to refuse. Do all things without complaining and disputing. We could say this is complaining or arguing. And it means not only arguing with God and complaining against God. We have some examples in Scripture of that with Israel, don't we? Complaining. Oh, we hate this man. Oh, we've been eating it forever. Let's go back to Egypt. But it says not only complaining, but arguing. We see people arguing with God. But it's more than that. It's saying also that in the church, we begin to complain against one another, and we begin to argue with one another. He says, listen, don't have empty conceit. Don't have selfish ambition and insist on your own way. And don't complain about each other. And don't argue with each other. Wow. Paul's words speak not only to the church at Colossae in the first century, it speaks to the modern church, doesn't it? Because this is where a lot of our problems arise. Harmony is intentionally being fueled by communion with Christ so that we have real communion with each other we love each other, we pull the same direction, we refuse to be uh, selfish, refuse to be arrogant and prideful, and refuse to complain against each other and to argue with each other. You know, sure, it's easier to live for Jesus on my own. It's easier, but the problem is just not biblical. It's like I've said before, it's like saying parenting would be easier without our kids. Yeah, I'd be a perfect parent if I didn't have kids. They make it really hard. Business would be so much easier without customers. You know, they're so demanding. They come in and they want this and they want that. Yeah, that's kind of what it's there for, you know. We have to change our thinking. The local church isn't about making us comfortable. It's about making us Christ-like. You know, I think that's why some people have switched strictly to online church. Because the truth is, is when you're not rubbing shoulders with other sinners, you don't have to risk very much. And it's very easy to turn off a screen. It's very hard to turn off a personal relationship 
someone who Sunday after Sunday is right there. Christ is using people around us, even in their sinful choices, to help us make us more like Jesus. You know, with the online church, you don't have to risk anything, and you don't have to worry about conflict or any kind of messiness. But that's a precisely why God intends us to have a local New Testament church, because He's shaping us through them. Well, here we see then some marvelous results. There in chapter 2, he says, verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless, the children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. What are the results when we have union with Christ and we're living that out as we draw closer to Him and that communion fuels us then to have real fellowship and communion with other people? When we refuse these things that disrupt our unity, he says, God then works holiness into our lives, blameless and harmless, clearly being the children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And he says, then holding, excuse me, whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain or labored in vain. You know what happens? Evangelism. Evangelism. Our holy lives become evident. God is working in us through that unity with Christ and that community with other people so that He shapes us. We start to become more like Jesus Christ, blameless, faultless, uh, without fault in this world. Then we begin to shine His lights. Why? Because you put that kind of life of Christ being lived out through us against the darkness that surrounds us, and it shines ever more brightly. It's this beautiful contrast that draws people to say, what is it that's so different? It draws people to Christ. Then he says, holding fast the word of life. Also could be translated, holding forth the word of life. So this affects our evangelism. We become more like Jesus Christ. It becomes evident to the world. And then this becomes holding the word of life out to a world that desperately needs it. Unity is such an important thing. So harmony is an important thing in the local church. But not just harmony, ministry. And we'll move quickly through these last two points. Real fellowship always produces love and service. Ministry is serving one another in love. And fellowship produces love and service and fellowship includes sharing goods and gifts. Notice what he says here. With humility, we esteem others better than ourselves. We look out, verse 4, for their needs. And then God will bring His redemptive work to the surface in our lives as we respond with faith and awe in God. And then God's work becomes, begins very evident in our lives. And we see this in Paul's life, even in verse 17, when he says, Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, listen, when we begin to draw near to Christ and His love, the love we have, his love for us, we experience His love for us, we then begin to have love for other people, and this means that we sacrificially serve other people. He says, I am willing to just pour out my life to, to the greatest extent. Here's the thing is, you say, how in the world can a pastor in the Ukraine stay and continue to minister in the Ukraine 
when it's risking his life and his family's life. That kind of love only comes with communion with Christ. It's only when you look past your own self-interest. Listen, a shallow relationship with Jesus Christ will never produce that kind of love. Never. Because you've not experienced the depth of Christ's love in your own heart, how are you supposed to share that with somebody else? So, it, res- it results in real love and real service, as we even see in Paul's life, and in real sharing of goods and gifts. And what I mean by that is sharing our material goods. We think of 1 John 3. We know that we love, uh, excuse me, we see that, in these verses we see that we know Christ's love because he laid down his life for us. When we see Christ's love demonstrated in his willingness to lay down his life for us, that's then when we know we need to lay down our life for our brethren. Well, how do we do that? If you have someone that has a need, but then you don't respond in love by meeting that need, he says you don't understand God's love. His conclusion is this. Don't just love with words. Love with your deeds. That's what real love looks like. And when we love with our deeds and through our giving and of our lives and our material goods, that proves that we understand Christ's love for us. We not only share those goods and gifts, but we share our spiritual gifts as well. We've been talking a lot about spiritual gifts. We learned earlier that Christ has equipped his people with spiritual gifts so that we can contribute to the spiritual health and maturity of all. God intends us not just to grow individually, but to grow together so that we win or lose as a team. Paul Tripp said this. Oh, sorry, I thought I had it up there. I don't. Paul Tripp said, let me say again, as I've written before, an isolated, independent, separated, and self-hiding Christian life is alien to the Christianity of the New Testament. Biblical Christianity is thoroughly and foundationally relational. No one can live outside the essential ministries of the body of Christ and remain spiritually healthy. As we all contribute our gifts, the whole body experiences health. And that leads us into our last point, which is maturity. And maturity is just helping each other be like Christ. Because the goal of fellowship is, in fact, Christ Jesus. How do I know that? Because Christ's likeness is the goal of salvation. (laughs) That's what Paul says later on in the book of Philippians. Not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I can lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. What? To be like him. That's what he completes in heaven, is when he makes us glorified. We're completely like Jesus Christ. So, why does God then throw this mixed salad together? Well, the purpose is the same purpose he had in redeeming us. He puts his people of redemption together so that we can all help each other grow to be more like Jesus Christ. And there's something that happens dynamically in the local church, growth that happens that can only happen in this context, in the context of God putting together, as he wills, the spiritual gifts so that we minister to one another and nurture one another in the faith. So we realize we were designed to experience spiritual health in the context of a faith family. And yes, that's tongue-in-cheek because our church name is Faith Baptist Church. But a faith family 
We experience in the church family the care of Christ and the counsel of Christ through God's people. And it's not just preaching and teaching by the pastor or the leaders, but by every member speaking truth to each other in love. That's what he says in Romans 15, 14. I am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you're full of goodness, you're filled with knowledge, and you're able to admonish one another. Paul Tripp also says in his book, Instruments in a Redeemer's Hands, for most of us, the church is merely an event we attend or an organization we belong to. We do not see it as a calling that shapes our entire life. But this is God's purpose for the local church. And spiritual health then requires encouragement and accountability. We need that. Listen, you go back to Acts and you realize that when Paul said, I want to come back to Ephesus and continue to preach, he says, if the Lord wills. And what we see is, is submission in several ways. He submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And he says, if the Lord wills, I'll return. He also submits to the local church. He goes back to Antioch. He goes back to Jerusalem and submits himself to those local churches. He submitted himself to loving relationships. And if you read through scriptures, Paul mentions dozens of people that he had strong relationships with. And all of us need to submit in all those areas. We need to submit to the Lordship of Christ. We need to submit to the local church. And we need to submit to loving relationships. That's what Hebrews 10 is talking about when it says, we're to consider one another to stir up to love and good works. That's what it means when he says in Hebrews 3.12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The, the people in Hebrews were struggling spiritually. They were enduring hardships and trials. And there was a temptation to depart from the gospel. And he says, listen, you guys need each other. You guys are going to drift if it's not for the work of of God working through each of you to encourage and to strengthen and to warn each other. And then the verse I just mentioned is Hebrews 10. Consider one another to love and good work. Stir each other up. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Some people are doing that. But you need it all the more while the day is approaching. Here's the thing is, as things get harder in America, more people are abandoning the church. When, honestly, more people should be clinging to the church. Not just as a, a community organization, but as God's people designed to minister God's comfort, care, and concern, and compassion through each other. These community relationships. We were made to experience the reality of Christ in community. That is where we experience the fullness of Christ. You know, people say, I can't wait to go to heaven to be with Jesus. But then they don't go to church and experience the fullness of Christ through his people. Yes, I know the church doesn't always live up to what it should be. But the solution is not to abandon God's way. It's to double down and invest yourself even more in God's way so the church gets stronger. Man, I want to be with Jesus. But the, here's the thing is, Jesus says, I want you to be with my people. <laughs> Because that's how he designed it. Well, let's bring the, it's time to lay in the plane, okay? <laughs> All right. So here's some, here's some way we can put this into practice, okay? Uh, we're thinking about harmony, ministry, and maturity. Harmony, intentionally work with your church family to do God's work. And here's the thing is a lot of times it's like, you know, I think God gave me, God gave me this 
this ministry and, you know, it's my ministry. And so they go outside the local church and try to go start their own thing. I encourage you not to do that. Because number one is you need people around you to gather and encourage and strengthen you and also keep you on the right track. As a matter of fact, I was reading a book, and I apologize, I didn't, I didn't write down the reference, but he actually mentions, uh, I think it was the Gospel Reset. Uh, and David Murray talks about how he had known three people that were involved in church work, uh, leaders who had kind of stepped out of the framework of the local church to start their own ministries and said, and three time, in those three instances, they ended very tragically because they didn't have the oversight and the encouragement of the local church. Listen, it keeps us not only spiritually healthy, it keeps us from getting off track. And what happens is we th- we're become so prideful, we're like, I think I know what's best for me. Here's the thing is God says, I don't think you do. So I'm going to give you a church family to warn you if you get off track and to encourage and comfort you so you don't give up. That's what we need. So work with them in God's work uh, for ministry. Intentionally cultivate and use your spiritual gifts in church ministry. Now, if you say, oh, my church doesn't have the kind of ministries that go along with my spiritual gifts. Okay, two things. Number one is you can learn to practice your spiritual gifts in a lot of different ministry contexts. You can just volunteer. Uh, actually, Bruce mentioned that, is uh, doing something that was uncomfortable for him, but God has used that, and God has used Bruce in our lives as he's spoken truth from the pulpit. And so, cultivate your spiritual gifts, and here's the thing is, is help us dream big. Come alongside and say, listen, I mean, God's really putting in my heart, and you know, there are things that God puts in your leader's hearts, and we say, but we just don't have the people to do it. And you might be the very person God is stirring up to help meet that need. Come and talk to us, and we'll try our best to try to see what God can do as we work together. And then maturity, invest your life in others and let them invest in yours. You know, someone defined friendship as knowing and being known. Knowing and being known. Now, here's the thing is, is if you want real biblical fellowship, you got to let yourself be known. You got to open your heart. You got to be transparent. You got to be honest. You got to be willing to, to, to risk embarrassment, awkwardness. Hey, listen, I've been there. I, I have been there. Say, okay, guys, I want to tell you something. And just unloaded on them things that were going on in my heart, struggles I was having. And that's important. You have to be willing to open up your heart and say, okay, I'm going to risk something here. I'm going I'm to open up my heart. And what you'll find is people will surround you, they will love you, they will encourage you, and you know what you'll find? A lot of other people say, you know what, I struggle with that too. Oh man, I have a similar area that I'm really working on. Will you pray for me and I'll pray for you? Let's check up and see how we're doing. Intentionally invest your life in others and let them invest in yours. Listen, if you don't do that, all you're going to have is surface level friendships. And here's the thing is, what I find is people are just like, oh, I just don't feel like I'm connected to my church. Well, what relationships have you built? I don't, not any, but I just don't feel connected. Can I say this? It's not rocket science. It's, it's really it's as simple as saying, okay, let's go out for coffee and let's talk. Let's talk about what God, and you can start with something as simple as, hey, what is God doing in your life right now? You know, I understand it's really hard sometimes to say, okay, I'm going to tell you my three biggest sins, and you tell me your three biggest sins, and uh, let's not talk too loud because we're in a restaurant, and I don't want anybody else to hear about my sins. <laughs> you don't have to start that big. Sometimes it's just start as, how are you doing? No, I mean, how are you really doing? How's your relationship with Jesus? And then let that build from there, but we all need it. Well, we've reached the airport. We're pulling up to the gate. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, 
thank you so much for uh, these truths that you've really, really encouraged my heart with. God, and I see these things happening in our church, and, and Lord, I see them growing, and I see them building, and I'm excited. But Lord, we still have, have folks in our church that don't feel loved. They, they don't have those connections. They don't, Lord, and I just see so much how through, the, through other people in our church, I have felt your hug in my life through the hug of a brother in Jesus, through another believer. God, there are, are folks that need, they're struggling with things that, that need other people to come alongside and love them no matter what and help them no matter what. God, help us to keep on growing in our church. And God, let, let us be intentional about it. And Lord, let's, let us have an investment mentality. Just build that through the Holy Spirit. We're going to be intentional and we're going to invest. We're going to pour out our lives into others. Let them pour out their lives into ours. But this is a work of the Spirit. We can't just drum this up because like, yeah, I guess we better do this. It, it has to be a work as we draw close to you in communion with, with Christ the love he has for us just starts to come out in our love for others. We ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here at Faith Baptist Church. Remember, next week, mission dinner, Joshua Braxton, Global Mission Celebration, so don't you dare miss that. And let me tell you so right now, stay for the dinner. Sometimes people try to sneak out. Don't do that if you don't have to. You try to stay. They say, well, I don't want to bring anything. Well, buy it at the store. No one's going to judge you. Uh, we'll judge you a little bit, but not much. No, I'm kidding. You, you bring something from the store and you say, this isn't international. This is like, you know what? You call it by, just name a country that not people know and just call it that name of the country. I brought mac and cheese. It's Uzbekistan mac and cheese. We're not going to know the difference. <laughs> Put it on the car and we're like, this just tastes like regular mac and cheese. And say, well, what did you expect? And then we're like, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> so anyway, you stay that time of fellowship is actually very important. It's not the fullness of fellowship, but it's a start. So we'll see you next week. Lord bless you, and uh, have a great week.